This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. All right, so today I am talking with a lawyer turned marketing guru pre and post INSEAD, turned business leader with a rather serious sounding job title in a blue chip corporation. I let him tell you all about it himself. But before that, let me give you a bit of color on him. Remember this little gem called Republic of INSEAD, the O3D little red book produced at the end of our fabulous year? If you've forgotten it, I'd say dig it out and start reading it. Laughing out loud is guaranteed. So here is the 20-year-old entry for my guest as written by one of ours from the Republic of INSEAD edition. Admit it, you'll never drink another Lipton iced tea without thinking about him. He redefined Big Willie style with his friendly smile and laid-back attitude. A marketing guru, his mastery of the four Ps, or is it five Ps, Arnaud? became evident early on when his contributions to class discussions made everyone want to work in FMCG. With a charismatic demeanor, he delivered a Richard Branson performance that would have made Sir Richard proud. A math camp veteran, his love of numbers was not exactly overwhelming. However, he never shied away from the challenges of the quantitative courses, even if it meant late nights in the cubicles number crunching while listening to 80s music. Of course, he could play hard as well. When it came time to put away the books, you could find Willem on the dance floor because it's the freaking weekend, baby. Time to have me some fun. Maybe some of you among the listeners already know who's on the mic across from me. For the rest, I let him tell it all. So, first of all, of course, welcome to you. I gather numbers was not necessarily your strength. Did I get this right? Man, I hope that, that <laughs> would have been a well-kept secret, but no such <laughs> So was it the charisma then that led you to where you are today and tell us where you are today? Yeah, it, it must have been the charisma. I don't know what else. <laughs> but uh, no, I, today I'm, uh, I work at Kraft Heinz and I have the pleasure of running what we call continental Europe. So basically um, everything except the UK and a part of Eastern Europe, all the mm. fun countries. Mm. And I got there from your LinkedIn. I saw Let's Make Life Delicious being the headline tagline, which I really, really liked. But uh, we are going to talk about food and health. Uh, that That is what drove my interest to to get you, to invite you to be one of the guests. But maybe as, as a beginning, run us through the last 20 years of your life in a nutshell. Personal, professional, all, everything you don't mind disclosing. And please elevate your pitch style, even if it's a high tower that <laughs> this lift is going up. 
<laughs> sure, no worries. So listen, uh, I went back to Unilever after um, INSEAD. I, I was uh, flirting a bit with consulting, but at the end of the day, I went into sales. So something completely different. Uh, and I stayed there for God knows how long uh, in total, including the four years before INSEAD, the 22 years. Um, moved back to Rotterdam, married my wife there. She's a surgeon here in the academic hospital. So that limited a bit our options to go abroad, which was a bit of pity because I think every cool place in the world came along as an opportunity at one point in time. But believe it or not, All these years, we stayed in Rotterdam and we've moved house only once. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but but we got a couple of really cool kids, a 16-year-old girl now who, who just came back from sailing across the Atlantic for six months and a 14-year-old boy who's a typical teenager with all the good, bad and the ugly you can imagine. Um, two Labradors in there and, and the whole private picture is kind of complete. And business-wise, um, I stayed with Unilever for a long time because every two or three years, an amazing, cool new opportunity came along uh, in marketing, in sales, in general management, and, and first in, in, in the Benelux business itself, then European roles and, and also even global roles. And one of the most fun things as that journey uh, took me was in a, in a food service role where I traveled um, across 75 countries around the world and, and got to eat the most incredible, but also the most disgusting things you can imagine in the world. But, but, but boy, what an experience. So what's the most disgusting thing you've eaten? Yeah, uh, I must say that I've eaten amazing stuff in China, but I never, ever got used to things like abalones and sea cucumbers. It's mm -hmm. too stodgy for my uh, Dutch kind of appetite. <laughs> All right. And so what would you say have been the biggest challenges of these 20 years, both personal and professional? I mean, personal, it's, it's been a, a juggle to, to combine two careers and, uh, and raise a couple of healthy, good kids, uh, and particularly a career in a multinational uh, on the one hand and a, and a very local kind of rooted career in medicine on the other hand. But together we've managed, uh, managed to keep it together and, and to make it work. So very happy that that ultimately worked out, but it wasn't always easy. Um, professionally, I must say that the most difficult time by far was after the 2008 financial crisis when I think a lot of businesses were under pressure and, and ours was no exception at the time. So a lot of layoffs and, and cost cutting and, and, and very nasty kind of period. And, and uh, yeah, that was, that was by far the toughest, but also very character building. So, yeah, it was, was a useful experience at the same time. So the pandemic wasn't as bad? No, frankly, I had a whale of a time during the pandemic. And I know that sounds crazy, but uh, yeah, um, it was a great time to reconnect even closer with the family and the kids uh, and, and still see some friends in a very limited kind of setting. Uh, it was a bit of quality time as well. And, and after having traveled extensively for five years, uh, it was actually a welcome opportunity to spend a lot of time at home. And... What made you switch after 20 years at Unilever? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, this context of, of um, me not being mobile, uh, of course, limits your options uh, within, a, within a big company as, as Unilever. Um, 
I personally also wanted to experience a change because I could have stayed at Unilever until my retirement. But, you know, I, I did really relish a different kind of culture and a different kind of setting. Uh, and I think the culture is ultimately what, what drew me the most to Kraft Heinz. And Kraft Heinz at that time was still part of the portfolio of 3G Capital. And I'd already heard about 3G in 2002 and what they were doing. And, uh, and I was one of the few people who actually was disappointed when the hostile bid for Unilever that Kraft Heinz did in 2017 didn't happen. Uh, so when I got tapped on the shoulder whether I wanted to come and run Europe at Kraft Heinz, I was one of the few Unilever people who was actually willing to come and talk. And uh, and all the people I met were amazing. And, and the turnaround story that we're driving under the leadership of Miguel Patricio is, is just a very exciting journey to be a part of. And how has the culture, because it must be a very American culture, am I wrong there? It's American-Brazilian, I would say, because okay. so many Brazilians were brought in by 3G that it's American-Brazilian, and that has a lot of goodies. Uh, it's very much a, a culture focused on ownership and meritocracy. So, you you know, it's way simpler structures, way simpler culture, and you just own your business, you own your P&L, and either you get it wrong or you get it right. Um, and people who do well, irrespective of age, tenure, whatever, background, they get promoted fast. And I like the, the simplicity and the honesty kind of that, that's in that system. Um, the downside of it is that, you know, perhaps they're a bit, US companies might be a bit less ad advanced than European companies in areas of ESG and that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Although Kraft uh, Heinz is, is catching up very, very fast, I must say. So mm. I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. And how many people actually you have in Europe, continental? God, that's a good question. So in the business units, 600 people, and then in the factories, another 2,000, something like that. And what's the biggest product? Ah, Heinz tomato ketchup, of course. <laughs> All right, let's have some ketchup. <laughs> good. All right. So uh, speaking of food, and as I quoted the tagline, I, I assume it's the tagline, uh, let's make life delicious. I've been obsessing with food as a key to good health uh, for most of my life, for whatever reasons. And we have small companies popping up and creating new products that are supposedly healthier, more environmental friendly, etc. But we all realize that if the big guys don't make the change, nothing is going to change. So what really piqued me, and because over time I've seen posts from you, I think you were still at Unilever about what you're doing in terms of healthier options, what you're doing in terms of environment. I wanted to go in that direction. So uh, where I want to focus and to have the meat of our conversation, so to speak, is food, um, environment, health, corporate responsibility. And I'm very happy you mentioned TSG here. So I'd love to hear more about how is this evolving in an American company. So this is the big topic for me in my conversation with you, and I'll just open it and let you take it whichever way you think appropriate. And maybe uh, because you hate numbers or you used to hate numbers, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like you to throw a few big numbers at us, like 
whatever, however many tons of tomatoes or whatever big numbers you're dealing with there. Yeah, sure. Listen, so let me, f- yeah, let me start by framing how the industry is kind of changing and, 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 and then where this comes into play. So there's a couple of driving forces which have always been drivers in the food industry, but continue to be as relevant as ever before today. And the first is taste. You know, uh, you can make something as sustainable or as healthy or as whatever you 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 can come up with, but if it doesn't taste good, people aren't going to eat it. Uh, and that sounds very simple, but I've seen brands really collapse because they went too far in these kind of things. Um, now, convenience, uh, particularly in the developed world, has also been a mega driver uh, over the last two decades in the industry, basically. Um, and nutrition is much more and more a driver than it used to be in the past. I mean, there is not a single brand that can afford to ignore it. And, and whether it's about reducing salt or sugar or uh, uh, saturated fats, all those kind of things, uh, if you're not very, very on the front foot there, you know, you're in trouble as a, as a company. And we're no exception. I mean, we're, we have taken 60 million pounds to talk quote a big number out of uh, sh- sugar out of our products in the last couple of years um, uh, it, all these kind of things and 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 then then if you look at the supply side of things things are changing dramatically as well due to deglobalization on the one hand uh, which has disrupted many different supply chains uh, and climate change on the other hand and that's the fun quote unquote part of being a essentially agricultural business is we feel the pain of global warming instantly. Uh, Most of the tomatoes that we source, and we're the number one uh, tomato processor in the world, most of the tomatoes that we source come out of California. California has been hit by drought after drought after drought. You know, this is global warming impacting a big big business right here and now. This is not, you know... Uh, 2050 or or beyond kind of uh, effects this is here and now and today so as a consequence we as a as a company have really stepped up also over the last yeah three four years under miguel's leadership and and like many other companies made commitments to get to net zero by 2050 but also to reduce already our carbon footprint by 50 percent in 2030 uh, we're doing a lot in the space so packaging, committing to making all our packaging 100% recyclable or reusable or compostable by 2025. So, you know, huge shifts across the whole portfolio and and, and the different levers of ESG, uh, but never losing sight of the fact that it's all about taste uh, in our industry. Mm. That's the primary driver of choice. Mm. So in terms of, you mentioned deglobalization and supply chains, what are you seeing on a daily basis? What are the issues you are dealing with? I mean, we already saw this to a certain extent during COVID because supply chains over the last two decades had been run basically 100% on, on efficiency. Mm-hmm. And 100% on the premise that globalization is here to stay. Um, And of course, we've had a long period of peace and prosperity. And now you see that that is changing. But but again, 
it, it already started with COVID where all of a sudden supply chains got disrupted massively and everybody saw how interdependent whole supply chains had become on each other. Um, and, and then now the war in the Ukraine uh, has of course exacerbated that. And to give you an idea, I think 50% of the global sunflower uh, produce comes out of the Ukraine, more than half of the global grain production. So these are big, big disruptions and big shifts, also leading to huge cost inflation, yeah. which we hadn't seen in the industry either. So fascinating times, if you think of it, but, but also worrying times. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm based in Bulgaria these days, so I feel the war very, very close to home. I'm sure uh, we are hosting another family from Ukraine uh, at the moment. So, yes, very, very, very difficult. Yeah, um, for anyone in Europe, for sure. Now, if we talk about the future of food, what do you see there? You know, because we had the craze with Beyond Meat and uh, whatever, whatever else. What do you see from where you sit? Well, uh, the funny thing is, I think food, the food industry, when it started, you know, at the end of the Industrial Revolution, was a high-tech industry. Mm-hmm. And over time, it kind of became a bit of a low-tech industry. And I think you see now a new era of high-tech food uh, industry emerging and, and that's fascinating right so for us it's all about closing the right kind of partnerships with the people who can get us or keep us in touch with the disruptive technologies uh, in the food landscape for for tomorrow and one of the partnerships that we uh, uh, entered was in uh, with a company called start life who is really an agri food tech accelerator and get it, getting us in touch with all these companies in the agri-food space who are, who are bringing disruptive technologies to life. So that makes it fun and exciting. The, the way you used to build very profitable businesses in foods was purely through branding. Uh, but, but I think now brands as well as technologies can really build modes of competitive advantage in our industry again. So, it's so can, be- you, can you give an example of a technology that's affecting... Oh God! Now, I'm. This like, is where I'm, I read. This is where I'm really too much of a poet. <laughs> <laughs> but I spend, But thank goodness we have amazing R and D people, and yeah. they can explain it in a way that a poet gets it. But I, uh-huh. I spent a whole day in our research laboratory in uh, in in the east of Holland the other day, and they were explaining to me how. Uh, I, I can't even replicate it. I, I'm. I won't even try. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm <laughs> But it's Never like mind. growing meat in a petri dish and growing tomatoes. In fact, in the Netherlands, you do have growing tomatoes on in the sky, basically, and in water. That's that's what I've heard. Well, water with all sorts of chemicals in it. So, well, that's where where Holland actually. And this is not a Holland promotion talk, but where Holland has an amazing kind of technological advantage. I mean, we're one of the biggest food exporters in the world for a tiny, tiny it's company. Crazy, right? And that's thanks to the agricultural technologies that we have uh, and, the, and the tremendous knowledge base in the Wageningen University in, in the east of Holland. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of the key sectors in the Dutch economy. And, and there's a lot of uh, innovation going on here as we speak. Mm-mm-mm. 
And if we look at obesity as a theme, you said uh, 60 pounds, 60 million pounds less of sugar in your products as yep. a percentage. What is this cutting from uh, from what to what? That I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that it's big. Um, and I know that we're doing a lot in the innovation space to, to offer healthier alternatives. I mean, some of these are no-brainers, right? Um, we're now promoting a big uh, campaigns on, on Heinz uh, Tomato Ketchup Zero, which is uh, a ketchup that has no added salt and no added sugars. There's a little bit of sugars in there because tomatoes contain sugars, yeah. but no added sugars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 25% of regular ketchup consists of sugar. This has a fraction of that. And this stuff tastes amazing. You know, we're not the first to play this game in our industry, but I think if all the big brands do this, it, it's a serious contribution to a healthier lifestyle. Of mm. course, people also need to get their bums out of their chairs and, <laughs> and, and move more, and I'm no exception, but yeah. uh, but there's, there's a lot that we can do as, as food companies. Yeah. And in terms of the environment, is it really you are able to get to uh, 2025 to have all packaging because this is massive right yeah we we just launched uh our new 100 recycled uh, ketchup bottle here in europe first actually so this is again where having a strong european business helps um it took 170,000 hours of r d believe it or not to develop that packaging in a way that that still offers the same kind of quality assurance, the same kind of uh, ease of use and consumer experience. Uh, but we did it, and and yeah, that's pretty cool. Impressive, one hundred seventy thousand hours. Believe it or not. Gosh, I don't know how many how many years that is. Oh, gosh, that's huge. I'm the All right. Well, if we are still talking food, let me ask you one last question on food, and that one would be personal. What food can you not live without yourself? Yeah, this is a big problem, but I love nothing more than a great grilled piece of meat. Okay. I thought you'll say ice cream. (laughs) Uh, Ice cream is a strong second. Ice cream is a strong second. And in ice cream, which is your favorite ice cream? Or is it uh, ben and Jerry's. All right. Like ben and Jerry's. All right. <laughs> okay. And uh, you already said you tried something once and you'll never try it again. It's the Chinese specialties, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, 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 well. There you go. Food. Thank you for that. If I may switch gears very dramatically and turn to INSEAD and you and INSEAD, you are you are someone who's already giving to INSEAD. And anyone listening from our class knows that my agenda, I do have an agenda there, so no (laughs) surprise. But you're a blue pin donor uh, holder. So you've given more than 7,500, that's the threshold there. Uh, I couldn't uh, check the, the exact figure as of today, but 
Uh, I know you have a pledge, annual pledge ongoing. So tell me, everyone has a story of why they give. And I also, of course, talk to people who say, I do not give because. Uh, but tell me your story. What makes you want to give back to INSEAD? Well, give back in general and then give back to INSEAD specifically. So philanthropy and INSEAD related giving as well. Yeah, so, you know, philanthropy, God, uh, I, I wouldn't call myself a philanthropist, I'm very far from it, but but there's a couple of causes that I just uh, uh, care about and like, and then I uh, say, why, why, why on earth not? I mean, being blessed with so many things in life, uh, it doesn't hurt to give back a little bit. Uh, even though in Holland we have an income tax rate, which already takes care of that very well, but nevertheless... But but why give back to INSEAD? Well, firstly, because I'm just grateful for the amazing time we've had. Uh, it was a fantastic year and it has been a, a life event for me. Um, but then a bit more fundamentally, I guess there's a couple of things that I like to believe in and, and, uh, and that come together in INSEAD. I like to believe in Europe. I think Europe is, is an amazing continent and that still has so much uh, potential. Um, and it needs to have its own strong business schools. I also believe in the power of education in a big way and, and giving you know, access to people with amazing potential to, to access uh, education, irrespective of whether they can afford it normally or not. And, and then finally, I, I believe in business potentially being uh, a source of good in the world and i think uh, INSEAD has a cool agenda on that so so i like it uh but it's not something that i've thought about very hard or long it's more a intuitive decision i would say intuition emotion that amazing year 20 years ago hey so uh thank you so much for this and thank you for the generosity i will turn to what i call the quick fire questions so if we can you know quickly get back and forth, play a bit of ping pong here. Uh, your proudest achievement? Two fantastic kids. All and right. now they've landed in the world. Success for you is? Um, doing things my way and still getting there. Okay. Happiness is? Here and now. Great. Always. <laughs> Biggest regret? I don't really regret anything. I just wish we had three lives instead of one because there are so much more interesting things to do. What keeps you awake at night? Back pains from a couple of ski crashes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so do you exercise for that? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm mm. not 29 anymore, I'm afraid. <laughs> wish you had known or someone had told you. God, I have no idea. Well, that's good. If you had to do it all over again, what would you change? Hmm, not a whole lot. I'm, I'm just super happy how it's all turned out, actually. Knock on wood. Bulgarians are superstitious. Knock on wood. Knock, Knock on, on wood. wood. So, retirement ever, never? Yeah. So, you know, when I dream a little bit, of course, I dream of spending uh, Time in the Alps in the winter, spending time on the med in the summer, and then doing stuff in fall and 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 and, 
and, and spring elsewhere and this, this and that. But to be honest, it's very far away. <laughs> I hope very far away. I'm still enjoying way too much what I'm doing, still way too much energy and ideas, and that kind of stuff. But who knows, you know, uh, in, in my industry, you don't see a lot of people working 24-7 anymore uh, uh, after their late 50s, early 60s. So probably 10, 12 years out and then perhaps some different kind of roles. We'll see. Yeah, which is not retirement basically, right? So. Yeah. Uh, if you had to pick one book everyone should read, what would it be? God. Or your favorite book in any case? Well, you know, I, I was a super lazy teenager, super lazy. And my sister gave me a book called Oblomov. And it's a Russian book about a guy who basically, I think the first 500 pages of the 700 pages, he doesn't even get out of bed. That was the biggest <laughs> kick in the pants I've ever gotten in my life. So if you feel very lazy, read that book and, you know, <laughs> you'll get that big kick in the pants as well, I hope. Could you repeat the title? Oblomov. Oblomov. Okay, Oblomov. Biggest irony? Uh, don't know. Don't know. Most admired public person? Most admired public person. Um, God, I thought about that one. Uh, well, I don't know. Most admired public person, but I do I do very much admire Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever at the time, at least in his first five years. Man, that guy was a rock star. Uh, he was able to really drive the performance of that company in, a, in an amazing way and treble the value and lead for ESG uh, in, a, in a very visionary kind of way. So he's certainly somewhere in my top 10, uh, but there are many amazing people out there doing cool stuff. Mm. And if I may, most despised public person. Yeah, I mean, at this point in time, I think the candidate is quite obvious, but maybe not everybody will agree with that. But um, you can imagine who I would have in mind there. We're talking politics or what? Yeah, we're talking uh, Putin. Uh, you know, I just can't imagine why on earth you would want to uh, drive so much destruction and loss of human life. But okay. Yeah. And the last one, are you coming to reunion? I hope so. Okay. But I don't know yet what my schedule looks like for All that right. well, time of year. Let me remind everyone, it's October 6th and 7th. We are working on it. So, um, And if anyone wants to help, do get in touch. So uh, that's it from me with Willem. And now I finally tell you who our guest is, because, of course, the Singapore crowd would know from the Lipton tea, that this is Willem Brandt, but the rest, <laughs> the Ponty people may not be so clued in. So Willem Brandt, who is uh, the president for Continental Europe of Kraft Heinz, and I'm very, very grateful for your time. And I very much look forward to seeing you, hopefully in Ponty in October. So thank you so much for the time. Same here. Thanks a lot and see you soon. Thank you. You are listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 years later, O3D podcast edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. 
Thank you Oli and team for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of Insia 20 Years Later O3D podcast edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from their film's productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening. <laughs>